Welcome to this week's edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Well, Don, we had a really excellent conversation today with former Premier Frank McKenna. We sure did. And um, I, I think the thing that we both appreciated was Frank was very candid. And uh, I think some of the things that uh, he said on some key issues are definitely worth uh, listening to. Absolutely. I, I think Frank McKenna is, was probably one of the better premiers that we've seen in Canada over the past 30 years when he was premier. I mean, he wasn't perfect in it by all means, but he, he was very passionate about governing, about what he wanted to do. He had a singular vision for where he wanted to see and take the province. And I think, uh, you know, he's still almost 25 years later now uh, since he left power uh, is still a very passionate advocate for New Brunswick and for Atlantic Canada. Well, you know, I had direct uh, contact with uh, Frank when he was premier. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I established a business in New Brunswick uh, that uh, supported his strategy to bring back office to the province. Um, that legacy continues. It's a really important legacy, but he has a bunch of other legacies as well that are equally important. Um, I think partnering with NBTEL, uh, who's another client that I worked with for a long time, was a very innovative uh, company at the time and leveraging their networks, uh, being the first fiber opt uh, sort of uh, telephone company in Canada, I believe was a big part of the success that Frank brought to the table. Uh, he was the chief marketing officer for the province, as you know, traveled all over to sell the province. Um, he, he was very important to the um, connecting communities through the highway program that he uh, was uh, initiated. And I think most importantly, and a lot of people don't uh, maybe maybe recognize this, but he brought a new level of confidence to the people in New Brunswick that remains to this day. So, you know, that's a pretty good legacy 25 years later. Um, you probably know that I wrote a column recently about uh, premiers that I've had contact with over my career, my 40-year career in the uh, polling business. And, and during that uh, time, I got to see upfront and personal, I think about 40 premiers across the uh, Atlantic region. I would put Frank up in the top two, in my view, as uh, being among the best for the achievements that he accomplished during his term. And um, I think that when you listen to this interview, you know why um, I ranked him this high. Yeah, he's passionate about politics. And I was very interested to hear him say he wish he was governing now because he would love to get out and champion the province and, 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 and really pitch the province as a location for uh, remote workers and for global workers to do their work, but do it from here. And I don't, I don't doubt that if he was premier today, he'd have a lot of success on that front for sure. He, he's, he's always, as you said, he was the chief marketing officer for New Brunswick, and I'm sure he would relish that role uh, in today's uh, environment as well. Uh, exactly. And, uh, you know, he continues to be passionate about his province and the region. Uh, he's a great, I guess, kind of like me, he's an elder statesman in terms of his ability to talk about things now from kind of an arm's length uh, perspective. That's why we wanted to have him on our podcast. And he certainly delivered on that on that mission, I, I would say. And now, without any further ado, here is Don and my interview with Frank McKenna. So I want to start today with a little story. Between 2010 and 2017, New Brunswick's business support services and office administrative services export revenue totaled $9.8 billion, making it New Brunswick's third most important export sector behind 
fish uh, and seafood and forest products. In 2017, this export revenue supported 13,000 jobs in New Brunswick, one out of every 25 private sector jobs and 1.3 billion in provincial GDP. The taxes for this uh, sector to the government of New Brunswick and municipal government exceeded $100 million uh, uh, in 2017 alone. So, of course, this sector has been a very important uh, contributor to the economy since you attracted Federal Express to set up in the province. I think that's slightly more than 30 years ago now, uh, uh, which is saying something, three decades. So there's still a good chance that if a Canadian needs to talk to somebody about their banking needs with TD or RBC or other banks, insurance policies, internet services, or hotel reservations, they'll be calling somebody in New Brunswick. I raise this example because it's likely one of the most successful non-natural resource-based economic development initiatives in Canada over the past 50 years. We could debate that. But I wanted to ask you uh, to tell us a little bit or remind us a little bit about how that initiative came about, why it was so successful, uh, and I would say durable, uh, after 25 years after we, we started working on that. And I will just say in, in the essence of full disclosure, I, had, I played a very small role. I was involved in that initiative way back. My first job when I came back to New Brunswick was working on that initiative back in the early 90s. So um, yeah, so that's the question for you. What, uh, what, what say you? Yeah, <clears throat> well, I'm going to start by thanking David because your role wasn't a small role at all. Uh, you were effectively making the snowballs that I got to throw. And uh, I remember it well. Uh, you armed me with some of the best facts and, and best uh, presentations that uh, I, I think anybody uh, could, could possibly hope for. So thank you for that. Um, so look, when, as I reflect on it, this, this wasn't anything profound. Uh, it became very apparent um, as we looked at our strengths and weaknesses in New Brunswick that we were, that we were uh, in demographic decline. In fact, we did a demographic task force 25 years ago uh, because I was so concerned about that. After reading David Foote's books on demography, I, demography is destiny, I became very alarmed. But also we knew that we were hewers of wood and drawers of water and that it was not sustainable for our population. Um, and you could see it with your own eyes every day. We had 10 mills, 10 huge mills in the province of New Brunswick at one point, and some of them would have as many as a thousand workers, all unionized, all making big money, etc. And then we wake up and there's a thousand people running the same mill, and then there's 700 people running the same mill, and then the mill gets closed. I started off with my father on the farm using a buck saw to, to cut trees or cut pulp. And uh, then it went to chainsaws and we thought that was a great destroyer of jobs. Mechanical harvesters came along and eliminated thousands of other jobs. So it just became so obvious that uh, the inexorable march of progress was going to decimate uh, the potential for, for uh, enough jobs in the natural resource sector. So that was uh, a part of the survey. But the second part of it was to evaluate our strengths. and. Our strengths were a little surprising to us because we, it wasn't obvious. One, we had the greatest little telephone company in the world, NVTEL. Uh, I wouldn't have known that. I just assumed we had a, a, a telephone company. But as we dug into it, we found out that this telephone company was far ahead of just about everybody else in terms of innovation and service. We had that. We had a bilingual population. And I always thought that was interesting, but we'd never marketed it before or realized what a great asset it was. 
And thirdly, we had a lot of unemployed people, which you would think would be a, a great negative, but in fact, it provided us with a, a large supply of labor. So we had all of those things. And then we had a really strong public service. And the, uh, the idea for distributed service centers in New Brunswick didn't come from me, I wish it had. It was really Kevin Boomer in the Department of Economic Development that, that you would have worked with and a number of other really strong public servants. And uh, amongst all of those people, we were able to put together a plan. And, uh, and you know, there's so much use having the stake if you don't have the sizzle. And so we had to spend some time putting the sizzle together and that meant putting marketing materials together and getting out there and selling. And, uh, and we, we tried, and I think with some success, to enlist uh, the, the whole of New Brunswick in that exercise. And you'd mentioned Federal Express, but I distinctly remember that when we heard that Federal X might be interested in a site for something like 50 jobs, uh, we became so excited about it. We got uh, the, the Canada Trust plane and David Smith uh, of Canada Trust and myself and uh, some others flew all the way to, I think it was Louisville, uh, to pitch Fred Smith, the, the, uh, the CEO there. And the end result of that was that we got 50 jobs. Now, not a big deal, but based on that 50 jobs, we went to UPS and we said, look, you got to locate here. All the career companies are coming to New Brunswick. And uh, it took us a year or more to land them, but when we landed, it was a big fish, over a thousand jobs. And the day we landed them, we went to Canada Post and said, look, all your competitors are there. They see the advantages. We landed them in Fredericton. And then uh, I had a friend who owned Perlator at that time and <clears throat> called him and he said, yeah, you're getting a lot of attention. Um, uh, and, um, and so Perlator ended up uh, as well. So we had, we had a stranglehold on the career companies. We did that systematically uh, with others. Uh, the Royal Bank, uh, I pitched uh, Alan Taylor, who was the CEO there, out fishing on the rest of Goose River. And he said, anything we can do to help the province? And I said, yeah, we need jobs. And he said, well, you know, we can't put our headquarters there. And I said, no, but you got a lot of other jobs you could put there. And he did it. And then we pitched TD and we started at TD with 50 jobs in St. John, New Brunswick. It was Canada Trust at the time. And that morphed into a center in St. John with 800 people in insurance. And now we've set up in Moncton, our financial uh, back office, which has got 500, uh, Easy Line, which is another 500, and we're standing up TD Insurance, which will have another six or 700 people uh, working remotely all over New Brunswick. So uh, this has really grown well. And what makes me so proud is that we outran the critics on this. We used to get oh, just constantly bombarded by university professors and CBC mainly who couldn't understand why we weren't trying to put auto companies in with big union wages instead of the, these kinds of back office jobs. But uh, I tried to tell them that the auto companies weren't lining up at our door uh, to do this, whereas we were finding good success with the service industry. So, so that's kind of the story of how we got there, David. And before I turn it over to Don, I, I would just say, I was looking at the numbers this morning, the average wage in that sector is now higher in New Brunswick than it is in Ontario. So um, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not necessarily $100,000 a year jobs, but the wages have started to become decent middle-class wages for the province. So uh, anyway, David, John, uh, go ahead. That, well, this never a strategy in itself. It was part of a strategy. One of the pieces of it was to tighten the labor force. 
We wanted to get people to work. One, for the dignity of working, but also so that everybody in the labor force would enjoy better working conditions. And I knew we were successful when uh, uh, a franchise uh, or who owned about 15 Tim Hortons came to me one day and he said, Premier, you got to stop bringing in all these jobs. I'm having to increase wages every day to keep people at Tim Hortons. Well, that, that was good news. That was a good thing. So that was one. Secondly, this was always a strategy to continuously add value. And uh, so we morphed from uh, back office call centers per se to uh, things like financial management, which we're doing at TD, where the average wage is probably 65,000 a year to bringing in uh, companies like IBM and CGI and OAO doing very advanced applications. And right now we've got 103 digital companies in the province of New Brunswick and uh, all of it coming from uh, an evolutionary uh, network of, uh, of, of tapping into the ecosystem that had been created. Uh, Frank, you might not recall this, but uh, <clears throat> you opened a contact center that we, uh, we had in St. John, New Brunswick. I can't even remember the year, sometime in the 90s, I guess. And uh, um, that uh, little contact center ended up at its height having 100 jobs in uh, St. John. Um, so the one thing I congratulate you and your government on is having a strategy because uh, one of the purposes of our, of our podcast is to take a look at economic development and start asking some really hard questions. I recently wrote a column uh, in the uh, daily papers, I don't know if you saw it or not, on the economic development efforts in Atlantic Canada. And I, did, you know, I was questioning how, how good of an investment we have in, in the return on that investment. I, I speculated that I added up a, a billion dollars pretty quickly, 600 million of which was through OCOA. And if you look at our performance for the last decades, especially in the last 10 years, We've, we've underperformed the rest of the country significantly, except for PEI. And the difference in PEI, as you know, is that they've really had uh, both strong economic growth and strong population growth. It looks like population growth has actually driven job growth. And they've, be, they've become a model, I guess, for the rest of us. But, you know, thinking about, I, I want to really add, you know, follow up on David's question about what is the problem that we have in economic development in this region, generally speaking, that, you know, you, we can do some successful things. If you look at the Bio Alliance and PEI, it's been very successful proportionally to the size of the labor force. What you did in the back office and through contact centers has done the same thing, but they seem to be one-offs, right? They, they don't seem to be, um, you know, coordinated, integrated enough to get us to, performing at the national level. What do you think is missing? What do we have to do? Uh, <clears throat> people, I, I would say uh, number one, two and three would be people, people, people. Um, we need immigrants, uh, our, age, our, our workforce is aging, that's just fact. But another fact, a dirty little secret is that we need to renew the bloodlines in our region. Um, we, uh, we get, we, I guess you could say you might say we, we get complacent. Uh, we've had 40 or 50 years now of unemployment insurance and welfare in our region, <clears throat> and it's made us a little bit complacent. Uh, transfers from the rest of Canada kept, kept us afloat, and uh, adversity is a great motivator, as you know. And sometimes when you, you, you know, you, you're really hungry, you have to hunt what you're going to eat. Um, so, but we need people from lands 
around the world where you have to do exactly that, where there's no free lunch and where you have to get out and hustle all the time. And uh, I go to these countries as you would around the world. Everybody's selling something. Everybody's doing something because they have to. And they come to our country and they populate our farmers markets. They, they're working in uh, the service industries. Everywhere you turn, we have immigrants. So um, we it's not a fault of ours. The country's tilted against us, let's face it. Uh, immigrants come in and 80% of them in the first year will end up in Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal. Uh, that's not our fault. It's just they have critical mass, so people go where people are, and that's where they go. And if you notice, those cities are booming. Uh, real estate is being built out. You've got consumers, you've got employee, employees, and you've got entrepreneurs, all of that. And we've been missing that. More laterally, we're getting that. And I, I think that that's really making a difference in our communities. We're starting to get some growth uh, there, and I think that's helping. Remember, we have a lot of native strengths, and we shouldn't overlook that. When you look at uh, the Irvings and the McCains, the great empires they built, but also people like John Bragg, what he's done in, in Oxford, but also in the Acadian Peninsula. Uh, you've got Norm Casey and Risha Bucto and uh, Thomas Soucy up in the Madawaska, Jean-Claude Savoie in San Quentin. Uh, all over the region, you look, and we've got great individual entrepreneurs, uh, but we've got to get all of our population thinking the same way, and we've got to have a workforce that's really motivated to work hard and to be more than just employees, but motivated to become employers in their own right uh, with the passage of time. You know, just to follow up on that, we've, we've had a, we've spent a lot of time so far in this podcast talking about population demographics, the need for, you know, growing a labor force that uh, currently is aging. Um, and uh, there is some success, lots of success uh, happening, especially in some centers. Like if you look at the Moncton Dieppe area, you look at Charlottetown, you look at Halifax, clearly um, those, uh, those urban markets are doing pretty well. You know, because we've had so little diversity in our population, one of the big challenges, of course, is overcoming resistance to change. Um, but uh, maybe you can comment on this, but one of, one of my uh, sort of theories is that because we haven't had a lot of new, new blood, as you say, coming into this region, we haven't had the same entrepreneurial drive that you know, immigrants especially bring to um, communities. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a fact that you know, um, immigrants tend to be more entrepreneurial, uh, more risk-taking, uh, they tend to create more jobs than they than they actually take. I, I just wondered if 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 you have a message for listeners about the value of what immigrants bring to our communities. Well, you know something, Don. I I I I, I live it with hope because I, I think things are changing a lot. Uh, I'll just tell you a little anecdote about uh, the immigration pilot and uh, in in my very very small uh, role in it, but. Uh, when the Syrian refugee crisis hit hard in Canada, uh, the Prime Minister challenged us to stand up and take more than our, our, our proportionate share. And as a country, we did. Uh, John McCollum, who's the immigration minister, called me and he said, look, can you help organize corporate Canada? Uh, and so, uh, and that's one of the things about being at the bank. You've got a bully pulpit and a big space to convene and everything. So, we had a meeting, we had a lot of CEOs from across the country and John McCollum came in and spoke. And uh, when I was introducing him, I mentioned 
that in New Brunswick, we had taken uh, a, a huge number of these Syrian refugees uh, and, um, and gave the facts and figures. When we we're sitting at the table, he said, can you tell me why a province that's poor in its own right would, would be such a, uh, uh, would be so anxious to bring in refugees, way disproportionate to its size? And I said, because we're desperate for people. And instinctively, we know that we know we need people. He said, well, we got to fix that. And went back to Ottawa and came up with the immigration pilot. Uh, and it responded to a need that we had, that we kind of knew we had, but have never articulated very well. And that's that we needed people. And I've been quite impressed. Uh, the governments, uh, I think, have operationalized it quite well. It's not a pilot anymore. It's a full-blown program. We are getting more immigrants. I still think Ottawa could do even more for us, streamline it and bring more. But what's really important to me, Don, is that I find there's a cultural, um, a, a cultural acceptance now that I never thought I would see. Years ago, when I talked about bringing in immigrants and so on, I just get constant heckling um, in the media from people who'd say, look, my Johnny can't get a job. Why would we bring in somebody else? Well, fact is your Johnny didn't want a job, probably, or wasn't trained for it which is on us, but the, the end result was there was a lot of resistance. Uh, but now every employer in Atlanta, Canada would take immigrants. They're looking for them. And every community is now starting to organize. David's been involved, I know I'm going around the province, but every community is organizing now around immigration. I was on the Miramichi last week and they told me they had a Filipino day there with 300 people. And, they, and the Miramichi, when I was on the Miramichi, there was no, 400 faces at all. It's 300 people. The, the most popular restaurant is a, an Indian uh, restaurant called Bistro Namaste. Uh, who would have thunk it that, you know, that this would become the thing? Uh, Norm Casey was telling me and Richard Bucto, he's hired a full-time Filipino as a coordinator for his workforce to bring people in. Kapolei, where I'm living, uh, every second person you see on the street is a person of color. Uh, they might be Jamaican or Mexican or Filipino, but they're here from all over the world. Housing is being built every day. There's new housing going up. Uh, a mass is organized for them on Sunday. And I just think the communities are starting to respond and embrace uh, immigrants. Uh, and, uh, and that's making a difference because uh, the problem we've always had is retaining immigrants when we don't have an immigrant base. And once we get a base laid down and get roots down and people can find their culture and their religion and their community in our communities, big or small, I think we'll have much better luck retaining the immigrants that we're attracting. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I like this idea of them, you know, they're here because they want to improve their lot in life. And I think as, as Don indicated, that has entrepreneurial overtones and entre entrepreneurship uh, uh, opportunities as well. <laughs> I think we saw that with the Acadian community a, a generation ago. I mean, a lot of our most successful entrepreneurs came out of that. Uh, Frank, you you mentioned Norm Casey, but there's a whole bunch that, you know, that really raising the, the the that whole community in terms of entrepreneurship and wealth creation and education and everything else. So, I think we'll see a similar pattern with the with the newcomers uh, they, to New Brunswick. In this little community that I live in, everybody works. And every second household has a business uh, they're operating. It, it's amazing. And their children are going on to be doctors and engineers. It's exactly what you've described. 
Uh, and we will, see, we will see that, and that will make a difference in our future. So I wanted, uh, if it's okay with you, I'd like to switch back to natural resources development. Um, you, you mentioned earlier hewers of wood and... Drawers of water. Drawers of water, right, that's right. Um, it's still a large part of the Atlantic Canadian economy, of course, offshore oil and gas, Newfoundland and Labrador, but even in New Brunswick, the forest products industry is very, very large. When you left office in 1997, natural resource mining alone was 6% of GDP. Now it's less than one. Um, I looked at some numbers here and just in New Brunswick, if we had sustained the forest product sector and the mining sector at the same level uh, today as it was in 97, there'd be 30,000 more people working in the province. Now that's probably unrealistic, but I did want to ask you, given that there's this increasing mobilization against this kind of development, what is your view of natural resources development? Should we just move on and forget it? Or do you think there's potential uh, or should we be working on, uh, you know, trying to attract investment into mining and, and, and forestry and other natural resources sectors? You know, the great shame is that uh, there are no mines in Toronto. Uh, because if there were, you, you would not have all of, the, uh, all, all of the rules and regulations and obstruction that takes place. Uh, and it, it's a great shame that across Canada, especially in the rural areas of Canada, there is such huge um, manifestations of, 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 of resistance. And again, uh, I think it's, it's a terrible mistake for a couple of reasons. One, because we lose out on really good jobs, terrific jobs, and it's something we're good at. We have a lot of mining expertise in Atlanta, Canada. By the way, I, I'm a little more optimistic. I, I look at uh, the trade magazines every day. I used to be on three or four mining boards, so I follow pretty closely. And uh, I find a lot of mining activity taking place across Atlanta, Canada, um, because commodity prices have really come off the mat, and we've got a lot of good people in that sector. But, uh, but it's very hard to get mines sited and into production. There's no doubt about that at all. And it has to do with people making rules uh, in Ottawa or Toronto that don't understand what it's like in the real world where we live, how difficult all of this is. Then on top of that, you've got a, a Supreme Court that's basically dropped bombshell after bombshell on us in terms of Indigenous participation to the point where nobody knows what the rules of the game are. Some people think they have veto power, others think it's consultative. But at the end of the day, we don't know what the rules are. It makes it extraordinarily difficult. The great shame in all of this is that we don't get a chance to bring our highly uh, technical and, and highly sensitive mining skills to the world. I can assure you the Belgian Congo is not going to lead the world in terms of clean uh, tech, uh, technology. And I can assure you when it comes to drilling for oil that Nigeria is not going to respect human rights the way we do. And Canada... Uh, in Alberta, where there's so much uh, energy activity, is the leading laboratory for clean tech in the entire world. Um, the innovation that's coming out of there is stunning. It's being driven by, uh, by government regulation, by price signals, carbon taxation, and so on. But if we weren't doing that, who do you think is going to do it? Saudi Arabia? Even the United States. So we're, we're, we're giving up a chance to, to be... Uh, an exemplar to the world. 
of how, how to do these things well. And I think that's a great shame. I also think it's a great shame that we can't get these projects into production because in every case, in my view now, First Nations should be equity participants. They should have jobs, they should participate. And so we're effectively excluding them from that. And what I find increasingly, I'm very involved in a lot of stuff across the country, is that the pushback is coming from First Nations who are saying, we're sick and tired of the things that we're working hard on getting shut down, uh, often by uh, environmentalists far from Canada who, uh, who are using us uh, as a fig leaf uh, to make their point. And I'm seeing increasing amounts of pushback from responsible First Nation leaders who want responsible resource development to take place. Well, Frank, that's a great segue into the question that I wanted to ask uh, with regard to uh, First Nations. Obviously, it's a, it's a high-profile emerging issue um, uh, in our country right now. There are some examples, of really good examples of uh, success for uh, First Nations, like Member 2, for an example, Nova Scotia, who just recently purchased... Um, you know, the biggest seafood company in Canada um, and um, also recently announced a big new commercial retail development up in Sydney. So uh, there are some uh, there's some really good examples of First Nations uh, really taking control of their own destiny. But I, I wanted to have your thoughts on how we heal and strengthen the relationships with First Nations, particularly as it re relates to the whole issue of uh, economic development for First Nations. Yeah, I mean, the First Nations issue is so broad that uh, we, we could spend a week at it. And there are a lot of the issues that are in the media today that others are better equipped to speak about than I am. But I, but I, I am a firm believer that, uh, that the best social program or uh, economic program you can do for somebody is to have them uh, working and contributing and feeling the sense of dignity that goes with that. And, uh, and also the economic uh, uh, resiliency that goes with that. And, um, and I, I think uh, there are wonderful examples. Chief Kerry Paul is a terrific example. There are other chiefs and leaders that represent great uh, role models as well. The, pro the challenge we have is that no matter how well motivated everybody is to work together, the governance model is broken. Uh, first of all, you've got a Supreme Court who's been ambiguous about what the rules of the game are. It makes it very difficult. Uh, but secondly, the governance model of First Nations is extraordinarily difficult to deal with if you're uh, a business person. And I'll give you an example. In Fredericton, uh, they went through years, there's a mining, um, a mining company, I think uh, they were going to mine tungsten, four or 500 jobs or something. They've got environmental clearance. First Nations sign off everything else. And the next thing you know, you've got First Nations grandmothers uh, camping out in the woods saying that they didn't want this project to go ahead. You saw the same thing out in uh, uh, the coastal gas uh, with Sweden, uh, where all of, the, all of the, the First Nations communities signed off on uh, agreements to participate in that project, but then some clan elders who had some other status completely said, no, it hadn't been passed by them. And as a result of that, they ended up closing down the railroad system in the country um, for uh, weeks, or at least it seemed like weeks, uh, costing the economy billions of dollars. Uh, 
So it's so hard for you as a company when you're used to dealing with another CEO of a company, when you find out that the chief may not necessarily speak for his people or even the, uh, the tribal elders may not be the right governing party. So this becomes extraordinarily difficult. And then you compound that on, on the Trans Mountain project. Uh, there's something like 100 First Nations along that uh, rights and title holders and all of them want to have a say in the development of that resource. So how do you decide which one is more important than the other? How do, how do you participate? Uh, you know, we, the country, we're working our way through all of this, but it is challenging and it makes resource development extremely difficult in Canada. And as a result of that, I think that we're dissipating a lot of national wealth and examples to be role models to the world on how we can exploit resources responsibly. So, uh, Frank, I apologize. We're coming at you from a lot of different angles here, but we do want to get your opinion on 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 issues that we think are important to the future of this region. And <clears throat> the next one I wanted to talk to you about is free trade between the provinces. So there's been a lot of talk about this. There's been reports saying it could unlock a lot of GDP, a lot of opportunity. Um, some of the smaller provinces are a little more nervous because they worry that it will mean more imports from Quebec and Ontario uh, and let not necessarily more exports from this region. Um, you know, construction would be an example of that, um, which has been kind of a protected industry. So I'm, I'm a big believer in free and open trade. I always have been, but I do think you have to consider this quid pro quo, like what's in it for the trading, you know, jurisdiction. So I wanted to get your thoughts on this issue of free trade between the provinces. Should we just break down the barriers and let it, let it rip? Uh, should we be more circumspect about it? Or what do you think the opportunities are for Atlantic Canada when it comes to freer trade? Yeah, I'm just, uh, uh, this will be a short answer. Um, I'm just 100% in favor of free trade uh, amongst the provinces. I think it's, it's an extraordinary act of political cowardice uh, to avoid making that decision. Uh, you can protect industries if you want. At the end, you don't do them any favors. Again, Companies are like people, they respond to adversity, usually with, uh, with resilience. And, uh, and that would happen. Look, when we started free trade with the United States, and I was a proponent, as you know, uh, of all the free trade agreements, the first one, uh, the second NAFTA one, and, and now USMCA, I remember uh, the wailing and gnashing of teeth from the wine sector that this would be the destruction, this competition. Well, what happened? The farmers, it was the destruction of the grapes that they were growing and they pulled them out, started all over again. And now our Niagara uh, wines and our BC wines are very competitive and, uh, and flourishing. And that's what we need to do. And in Atlanta, Canada, my view is if the rest, you know, we've got a problem. We're next to Quebec. Quebec is extremely protectionist. So I think we should just rip the Band-Aid off in Atlanta, Canada and say total 100% free trade. You could even do what, I don't know, what do they call it? Uh, reverse uh, billing or whatever option billing, where you just basically say that uh, every rule and regulation is automatically rescinded if, uh, if governments don't somehow or other make the case to keep it. Uh, so I would rip the Band-Aid off in Atlanta, Canada, have total free trade, and then be a coalition of the willing and everybody else in the country wants to sign on, sign on. So uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, they would probably all sign on with us. And we'd have free trade. Would we have Quebec? Probably not. Uh, they're very protectionist. Uh, 
but on the other hand, they lose uh, uh, by that, and, uh, and and maybe they would come on board. It's a very commercial province, very strong economy, and so maybe they would see the advantage of participating. But I think we should do it. And at some stage, every federal government that's been elected, when I speak with people who talk about this, I counsel them to to just do it, pull the trigger. I'm convinced the constitutional authority rests with the government of Canada for commerce in the country and just do it. It's like uh, regulator, national regulators. Look, we've spent 20 years talking about having a national regulator. At some point, we, we just got to do stuff and be a country, just not a constellation of provinces. So anyway, is that clear enough? Or is there Absolutely. Any There's no, uh, no ambiguity there uh, uh, <laughs> with that response. So I do, I do appreciate that. Before I turn it back to Don, I did want to ask you one more question on the immigration issue. You've been a very strong supporter of immigration. You've reiterated that today. But you also talked about retention a little bit earlier. And, and, and I think that's one of the big issues now is how are we going to retain, what should government do or what should we do as communities to retain? I think you touched on this a bit earlier, but maybe you could elaborate a little bit on how, I mean, we're looking at in New Brunswick as one example, potentially attracting tens of thousands of immigrants over the next uh, decade. Uh, how are we going to retain them in our, in our province and in our communities? Yeah, well, I think we need to start with the universities and, and they need to uh, work very hard with immigrant students who are here. And we need to give them a clear path to citizenship. These are bright people, educated people, need clear paths to citizenship. And the quicker, the better. Uh, that's a mother load for us. Then, uh, you know, governments can do their thing. But at the end of it, I think communities have to step up and respond here. And, and, and they have to wrap these people in a blanket of love. They, people are coming to Canada from some pretty desperate situations around the world. And we have to show them the love and show them that we care and make sure that in the communities we provide the cultural support which they need. It's gotta be a lonely, lonely thing, uprooting your family and bringing them all the way from some foreign land. My grandfather did that. He, he, uh, he was a herdsman in the UK and he, he left with five young daughters, got on the boat and landed at Pier 21 and came to Canada. This, this is extraordinarily uh, disruptive for people. We don't want them running off to Toronto to find a cousin. So we have to create communities. So I think every individual community almost has to have a plan as to how they're going to uh, make people feel wanted and lay down roots. But we also need more than that, uh, professional organizations. It drives me nuts. And I heard the story this week about a pharmacist from Iran or someplace who's stocking shelves in Moncton because he cannot get accredited. Uh, or listening to a taxi driver talk about how he was an engineer in Syria but can't get accredited. Or doctors at a time when we're desperate, desperate, for doctors in our communities who can't get through the system. Now, is there some appropriate protection involved in that? Probably. But what is it more than anything else? Sheer protectionism and parochialism. And governments find they can't deal with these professional accreditation organizations. They get tired of fighting with them and they kind of give up. But, you know, the Association of Pharmacists in New Brunswick and physicians and everything else, they're part of the province too. And they should be part of the solution with this. 
we should find ways of fast tracking accreditation uh, as, as quickly as we can and just stop, uh, uh, stop being so silly when we have access to such great talent. Now, we have situations here where both husband and wife are doctors and they can't get work under any circumstances. Somebody's got to have a file on their desk saying uh, this, these two people are going to be in the labor force within six months. We're going to make it happen. Anyway, uh, again, I, I, I get very uh, excited about this because I, I see so much potential from these wonderful newcomers. Uh, but I, I just hate the idea that we're wasting great talent that's available to us as well. Frank, one of the one of the, my interests for as long as I can remember is the discrepancy in economic success across the region. If you look at the six kind of major, what we would call major cities, they're all doing well. We don't have to worry about them. The Monktons of the world, the Charlottetowns, the Halifaxes, they're, you know, they're all doing well. The problem is, is that there's wide swaths of the rest of the region who are failing almost. Um, I've been proposing, I guess now for a decade, the idea of an urban hub strategy, an economic hub strategy that would concentrate on mid-sized, small urban um, communities across the region. So in New Brunswick, they're, they're the northern cities are, are part of that, of course. Uh, um, there's, there's probably a, what I would call 30 centers across Atlantic Canada that would serve well over 90% of the population within about a half hour drive. And part of the uh, economic hub strategy is to replicate the success of the more successful urban communities. And what do they do? They start off by having an economic development agency focused on the full region, not just the urban community in which they reside. They have a good, strong economic strategy, which includes population growth, by the way. And so the lessons are already there. I just, I, you know, can you comment on, you know, the idea of, of, of concentrating on, on urban communities as uh, economic drivers for the rural communities that uh, surround them? Yeah, so um, Don, I, I've been reading your stuff and, and your contribution. The last article you wrote, I, I, I clipped it and kept it because I, I, I thought it spoke to a lot of great solutions to issues. I, I've been around politics long enough to know that, uh, that sometimes it's easier to do things uh, de facto than de jure. And by that, I mean, if you said this, this will be thus, it, you'll have endless fighting. Whereas if you just allow it to happen, you might get the results you want. There are some things happening organically that, that, that support exactly what you're talking about. I call it connectivity. It's, if we articulated it this way, we would have been killed probably. But part of the reason for four-laning New Brunswick was connectivity. So if you live now in Appahawk, where I grew up, you can work in Moncton or in St. John and only be 40, well, 30 minutes or 40 minutes away. So you get to live a wonderful life in the, in the country, but you can work in the city. Kent County used to be the poorest place in New Brunswick, one of the poorest places in Canada. Just about everybody that I know of now in Kent County is working. A lot of them are working in Moncton uh, because of the highways. It makes it much easier to do that. And in uh, and, and, and Nova Scotia, highways are be, being built to pace across the province. So that's, that helps. And secondly, just internet connectivity. 
we have uh, some of the best connectivity in, the, in North America in Atlanta, Canada. It's getting better. A lot of work is being done to make it better. But a lot of people would like to live in a rural area and have 40 acres and plant some potatoes and tomatoes, but work in a very challenging and interesting job. You can do that now. And it's never become more apparent than with the pandemic. And uh, the value of Atlanta, Canada has never shone so brightly. Uh, our quality of life, our affordable cost of living, our connectivity that allows people to, uh, to live here and, and enjoy a, a wonderful life and, and still have a challenging job. You know, the TD Insurance Center we're standing up in Moncton, we'll only have maybe a couple of hundred people working in Moncton. The other 400 we hope are in Northern New Brunswick working out of their homes uh, or communities. So in a way, this is happening almost organically, uh, the, the, that kind of connectivity. And, uh, and I, th I think that um, it makes me kind of optimistic about where we're headed because uh, I, I just see so much happening in, in these rural communities. I'll just give you a little example because I was there recently, Hillsborough, New Brunswick. They've got a pizza place now to die for. So people from all around the province are driving there for pizza. So somebody got smart and said, well, they're coming there for pizza. I'm going to set up a market. So they're setting up the equivalent of a mass town market, which is going to be there. Uh, somebody else has started, because we're building a bike trail right through there, they're basically uh, setting up a bike manufacturing business for really, really high quality bikes. And, uh, and, and you, you know, you just add it all up, then they got a sticky bun uh, to die for in Hillsborough. And after a while, people say, wow, Hillsborough's, you know, it's only 30 minutes from Moncton. What a great place to live. Also, we found out the Battle of the Petty Kodiak took place there and Beyonce, uh, his grandparents or great grandparents seem to have come from uh, near there. So uh, all of these little communities, I'll give you an example. Again, uh, Albert County was always really cut off from the rest of New Brunswick and Obscure. But now the Fundy Trail is being finished. The last piece of it will be done in August of this year. You can drive from the United States, from St. John, Sussex, Fredericton, wherever, right through St. Martin's. Fabulous little communities through Alma, another great little community. And it's going to gentrify Albert County, all of these visitors. It's just going to change the nature of it. So organically there's a lot of a lot of pretty good things that are happening i'd say in our rural areas and it may be that we've we things have been flipped over and it may be uh, the fact that we were rural a little bit remote and uh maybe that's become an advantage for us now one that we should be marketing another concern that i have and probably others as well as the um, fiscal sustainability of the provinces particularly I'm particularly concerned about Newfoundland and Labrador, which I think is probably technically bankrupt right now. Um, after rising in the first uh, few years of your time as Premier, New Brunswick's net debt uh, to GDP ratio started to decline and kept declining from its peak in 93, I think around 38% to less than 25% in 2008. It's now backed up to 37%. Still, I guess, compared to other countries, not much, but in the current uh, world of ultra low interest rates, it doesn't seem much of an, uh, an issue, but it's likely going to become an issue over time. Are you concerned about provincial debt and fiscal sustainability in Atlantic Canada? And if so, what should be done to get back on the path to provincial fiscal sustainability? Yeah, I, I'm in the camp of being very concerned about it. Uh, I, I just think, uh, 
it, it defies the law of physics. What goes up comes down. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and we, this always ends badly, Don. So I, mm -hmm. I'm very concerned about it. Uh, you know, people, respect, respectable, knowledgeable people will say, yeah, but interest rates are so low that it's easy to service the debt. Well, duh, you know, interest rates also go up. <laughs> and uh, if they go up, we don't have any, in, any fallback position. So I think, um, I, th I think this should be a really big issue. Let me give you a little example that I think absolutely uh, describes the importance of fiscal probity. Back in the 19, or I guess 1990, 91, 92, that uh, time, Kretien was the prime minister. You'll remember the Wall Street Journal ran an editorial talking about Canada being close to being a third world country because of the debt we had. And anyway, it galvanized the entire country. We'd hit the wall. We, we hit the debt wall. And, uh, and they cut back equalization programs, transfers to the provinces. All of us provincially hit the wall. And the end result of that was that we ended up doing stuff which we should have done but didn't have the courage to do, reducing the footprint of the public service, freezing wages even, uh, reducing beds in hospitals, putting more people into communities, reforms that should have been done. Uh, all of that was done across the country. It's the greatest period of reform almost, uh, I would say, in, in our history, pushed on us because we had hit the wall. Okay, jump through till today. As a result of that, by the way, the country ended up getting its debt in order, debt to GDP ratio declined, interest on the money that we borrowed declined. We actually had money to provide services to people at lower taxes. All of that happened in that period of time. So jump through today. So Justin Trudeau ends up spending probably more per capita than any place in the world. Well, he did that because he sailed his boat in yesterday's win. He essentially had the luxury of doing that because of the fiscal probity that took place sometime before. And this just plays itself over and over and over again. These European countries that are, are, are uh, excessive uh, in, their, in their spending habits always end up paying a price and crash and burn. And the, and the really probative ones like Germany and others are always around uh, afterwards to pick up the pieces. So it just makes my point, I think, that we should all be th always be thinking about the rainy day. Uh, maybe today we can afford it, but think about what it's like when, when things turn. So I, I, I'm strongly in favor of continuous restraint, continuous program uh, review, and, uh, and, and growth. Exciting growth will always help dissolve uh, uh, debt. Uh, and so that's the second pillar, uh, but exercising restraint I think is something that should be part of everybody's tool chest every day. So I wanted to ask you a couple of political questions. I don't want you to weigh in on specific governments or anything like that, but I did want to ask you what has changed between the early to mid 1990s and today? Politicians seem to be much more afraid of inciting negative public opinion now. Am I wrong? You know, I, I thought I was naive. I thought we had a pretty tough, uh, um, you know, lots of criticism. I, I remember having as many as 5,000 protesters in front of the, in front of the legislature. And we had so many protesters around the house. Somebody set up a hot dog stand and an enterprising entrepreneur to make a little money off of it. Uh, but I think it's much worse today. And I think the reason it's worse is because of social media 
And so what we have now are small groups with big megaphones. And I think it was Lord Byron who said that he feared the tyranny of the mob as much as, as, much as he feared the tyranny of the king. And so you end up with these constant, uh, these, these groups that have excessive uh, sway because of the, of, uh, uh, they're able to amplify their message. And, uh, and I think governments have to deal with that. And, and I think it's hard if you're a leader now to figure out what's real and what's been contrived. And is, does everybody in the country feel this way or is this just a small little group with a big megaphone? Um, so I'd say that's very difficult. And then hand in hand with the social media is the intrusion. Everybody's got a, a camera on their phone. Everybody's snapping a picture all the time. Could be of you and your behavior. Could be your police, one of your police officers. It could be anything. You're uh, in the pandemic. You've taken your mask off for 30 seconds in an airport. Bingo. Gotcha. So yeah, I, I think it's, I think that's a difficult environment to operate in. And I think it, I think also we live in a world of instant obsolescence and politicians are like cars and like phones, uh, you know, and like diapers. We t tend to want to change them quite often. As they say about politicians, they're like dirty diapers. We change them often for the same reason. So. <laughs> Actually, we had a really interesting example uh, around Canada Day, Frank. Um, I don't know if you saw the, there was a poll that was put out by Leger uh, who indicated that uh, I believe the number was 77% of Canadians did not feel it was right to cancel Canada Day. Um, and uh, yet it happened. It happened, yeah. you know, without a lot of public debate, frankly. It did. That was an example for sure. Uh, I agree. Look, the most graphic example we live with all the times in the United States of America where in spite of one of the most overwhelming victories in the history of voting in the United States, a 7 million uh, majority for Joe Biden and a large victory in the Electoral College, probably 50, 60 million Americans uh, don't believe that he won the election and that Trump should be president. There's so much poison uh, out there in Canada. Look, uh, I don't despair because I don't think we have it too tough, but... In the U.S. particularly, there's just so much uh, poison and so, so many lies that are, are just reinforced over and over again uh, that after a while, people don't know what's true and what's false. And I don't blame people. I, you know, I, I do blame the organizations. You know, there's somebody who was a Fox News executive up until a week ago was just talking about how disgusted he was. He said, the people who own Fox know better. They know this is all BS, and yet it's good for business, so they let it all go on. Mm. You leave aside the political part of it. You know, we can live with that. So they want Republicans to win and right-wingers and everything. It's the fact that by effectively denying the seriousness of the pandemic and, and the appropriateness of vaccine, they've literally led to the, to the cost of thousands of lives. Hundreds of thousands, probably. Now that's that's really disgraceful. And yet, even now in Canada, I don't know. I don't. I'm not on those sites, but I, I'm told you can get lots of misinformation from lots of sites that will mislead lots of people. So that's not something that we would have had to deal with some years ago. Yes, and it's. I'm sympathetic to politicians for that. 
The other question on this I wanted to ask you quickly is, is around the age of the population. So when you were premier, the median age was 31 or when you started in 89, 87. Uh, now it's 40, more than 46 in New Brunswick, similar in the other provinces with the exception of PEI, as Don mentioned earlier. Um, in 87, there were 2.5 times as many people under the age of 25 than over the age of 60. Now it's flipped. We have far more over the age of 60. Does that make politics harder, having a much larger politi- uh, uh, group of older uh, residents that may or may not be as interested in economic development and other issues that are more pertinent to younger New Brunswickers, what, what are your thoughts on the age issues in, in our population? Yeah, it, make, it, it makes it different. Uh, so, David, I would say, uh, again, I just keep doubling down on this. Demography is destiny. And, you know, actuaries make their living off of that. But anybody else could sit down and look at these trends and forecast uh, what government's going to have to respond to years down the road. And, um Everybody, everybody can can do that. And what, what came at us, we knew 25 years ago it was a tsunami. We just couldn't get traction with the public. And one of the things you learn in politics is that there's very little support for solutions to problems that people don't know they have. And it's only with the fullness of time and the gravity of the situation that people say, yeah, that's a real problem. We have to deal with it. So I think that's one of the reasons there's so much acceptance of immigrants. But to cut to the chase on your question, it it does change things. And I think we saw, it, maybe this is the good side, maybe it isn't, on the management of the pandemic. Atlantic Canada was buttoned up tighter than just about any place on the planet. Be hard to find, maybe New Zealand, but there's not many places buttoned up tighter. The rest of Canada can't believe that we have borders between borders here. And, uh, but, but that was widely supported across that region. I think largely because we had an older, more vulnerable population. And I think politicians who appropriately responded to that anxiety are probably being rewarded with good levels of support. So uh, on the one hand, I guess it makes it easier to govern because you can take more conservative, like fiscal probity is something that seniors have a better appreciation of than young people, quite frankly. And so it helps politicians that way. But it also is going to really challenge them on issues like healthcare. Uh, older populations are going to demand access healthcare and good quality healthcare, and younger people are going to say we just can't afford any more taxes. And so you're going to get intergenerational uh, cleavages that are going to be very difficult to manage. Uh, but uh, anybody who doesn't pay attention to that changing demographic would pay a, a, a big price, uh, I think, for their neglect. But is it your sense that older New Brunswickers are open to immigration? Is that what I'm hearing you say? They, I'd say they weren't. Uh, I, I found a lot of resistance. I find increasingly they are. And it may be just because they see so many employment, so, so many places with uh, help planet signs out. After a while, it's quite gripping. I think it just takes some conditioning. It, it takes a while. In Toronto, nobody ever says a bad word about immigration because 50% of the city weren't born in the city. It's just natural. It's going to take us time, but we're getting there. And older people, I think, are more supportive now than they, they used to be. But they're still not as open-minded as young people are on that issue. 
Frank, it looks like we're going to have to do a two-parter because we have so many questions still to ask and we've kind of run out of time for this segment. I, I wondered, all, I don't want to let you go without a, a comment about the future of Atlantic Canada. I've always known you to be a really optimistic person. I'd like to see and hear what you have to say about the future of the region. I'm more optimistic now than I, I was and, 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 I, and I was always optimistic. In fact, I wish I were governing during these times um, because the world has shrunk uh, enormously. Look, one of our disadvantages in Atlantic Canada, in my view, is that we've got small populations and, and a remote geography. So we're quite far from the major markets of the world and we have a small population, not large enough to create critical mass. But with, uh, with the pandemic, it's become very obvious the world has shrunk. Uh, businesses, giant, like our bank is running now with 85,000 people working from home, literally. Um, you know, who, we wouldn't have even thought two years ago we could do that. Every industry is adapting. The ability of humankind to adapt has never been more clearly evident. And so regions like ours that offer security, quality of life, affordability, I think we're back in vogue. I think that we, what I'd like, the reason I'd like to be a politician now is I think the marketing you could do here is, is incredible. Uh, first of all, it wouldn't cost too much money to just finish the connectivity piece. So we have 5G available everywhere in Atlantic Canada. And then you go out and market the hell out of, out of what we've got here. And I'd love to see computer scientists from Silicon Valley working out of the backwoods and near Musquodavit. You know, I'd love to see people designing airplanes uh, in, uh, in rural Restigouche. Uh, all of that's possible, I think, in the new world we have with connectivity and with people fearful about their own personal security. Uh, I, what I work on now, um, working almost full time on it, is digitization. I'm working very closely with UNB on a major project to try to help digitally transform the economy because I think that's our future. We, we've got to keep working, going up the value added chain. We've got to uh, stare down our past and look boldly towards the future and, be in, and, and, and understand the most successful places in the world uh, are not resource rich. Uh, it's based on knowledge rich. And if, if, we, if we double down on that with our great universities and, and enterprising spirit, I think, I think the future looks pretty good. Well, Frank, you know, uh, one of our goals of this podcast is to um... Uh, have a dialogue with Atlantic Canadians and try to bring some facts and figures to the table and some people who know what they're talking about. And you certainly have helped us in that cause today. Uh, David and I would really like to thank you for agreeing to be on our podcast. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network, hosted by Don Mills and David Campbell. Mark Legere and Sharice Letson helped produce this episode. You can subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And we care about what you think, so please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again with another episode next week.